and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, we have Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Doing just great. Missing Danny, but doing yes. just great. Well, we'll my heart will go on. <laughs> Danny O'Dwyer uh, is on assignment this week. Um, if you are new to this podcast, there's usually three of us, but uh, we uh, used to get along with just two, so we'll, I think we'll be fine. Danny, you are missed. Uh, if you're new to Formula One itself... We've got an episode just for you. Uh, our preseason primer assumes no prior F1 knowledge uh, and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that, get up to speed, so to speak, on Formula One. Uh, and then you, <laughs> you will understand everything that we say uh, in this subsequent parts of this podcast. Uh, you can go listen to episode 216. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash shiftf1 or click the link in the show notes. Rob, we just recorded and posted uh, our IndyCar primer which is sort of doing the same thing that we do every year with our F1 primer, but for IndyCar, I had a lot of fun recording it. It was a blast, and I'm glad we timed it when we did because it was just in time for a very good uh, Long Beach GP. So it was a, uh, a great it was a great show and a great time to get into IndyCar. Yes. Um, but uh, we would be remiss if we did not mention our title sponsors over on Patreon. There are many... Uh, tiers that you can join but uh these folks have joined the ones that get their names read out on the top of the show in alphabetical order order starting with special characters we have at talking autos at team blackjack hashtag bunny crimes abdullah althani abraham getchell alex goucher alex medina bailey foot circuit demon drew stewart gordy's army umberto roca ironstation.dev irvine clinical research jason chadwick Jason Kelly, Kick-A-Ha of the Art, Lachlan the Madden Man, Max Voltar, Michael Maves, Olivia Evans, Sniggs, Cyphus Training, Turf SCS, TelemetryDeck.com, Tiger Wood, Troy Stammer, and William Rompf. A couple of new names in there. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, who supports us on Patreon. Uh, this episode's a little different. Because we are in the gulf of no F1, uh, we're right in between. We're right where China should have been. Yeah, this never happens, and that's by design. Yes. Like, this this, this little dip in F1 activity does not exist once the F1 calendar gets rolling, except for the three-week break. Right. It usually happens in the summer. I'll bet Formula One is pretty peeved at this uh, because, you know, beginning of the season, they're coming off of that drive to survive high that they get every year when it releases just before the season starts. And to have it kind of dip right now is like, ugh, really uh, killer to the momentum. Uh, but we uh, are going to hold it down with some news and some emails. Uh, so join us, won't you? We're going to start with something, uh, a follow-on story from the Australian Grand Prix. Uh, Carlos Sainz crashed into Fernando Alonso during the final standing restart. Uh, if you haven't watched that race, boy, there was a lot going on. Uh, we did uh, multiple standing restarts. In one of them, Sainz um, 
as I, I said, uh, crashed into Fernando Alonso and was issued a penalty, a, uh, a small, uh, relatively small uh, five-second penalty. But because everyone was bunched up at the end of the race, he fell from fourth place to 12th, uh, effectively last of the runners uh, with a five-second penalty. Uh, and he and Ferrari went back to the FIA, uh, the uh, governing body behind Formula One, and uh, requested a review of the penalty. The signs especially said uh, that it was just way too harsh, uh, especially because, as we pointed out in our uh, post-Australia episode, the whole thing was mooted because um, that incident uh, was effectively erased by them resetting the grid for the final restart. Um, but that's not how the stewards think, and the stewards have uh, summarily declined, dismissed this request for a new hearing, saying, quote, there is no significant and relevant new element which was unavailable to the parties seeking the review at the time of the decision concerned. The position is therefore dismissed. Uh, first of all, Rob, uh, what do you think of that? I mean, they've had this position before, right? Like it was like when Red Bull wanted to uh, relitigate the Silverstone incident a couple of years ago with Hamilton, they they tried to get around this uh, like dictum that you have to have new evidence for for hearing if you're going to reopen a ruling, and they tried to get around that by having uh, the then. Uh, on reserve, Alex Albin stage the. Oh my god, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Like he was, he tried to stage the incident again yeah. in an older model Red Bull F1 car, and from that data, they were trying to suggest that uh, you know proved conclusively that Hamilton could mid turn, etc. And F1's response was, "This doesn't constitute new evidence. It's it, it it's not like it's, it's a recreation uh, after the fact of the different cars. It's just not." Uh, it's it's not germane to the ruling, and since there's no new information the stewards lacked, uh, we're not going to revisit that. So they, they've been consistent on this. I think what's going to be really grating for Ferrari in this case is a lot of what this seems to come down to is they feel that the stewards rushed the decision. Right, they didn't yeah. like give signs a proper hearing. Usually, drivers do get a chance to plead their case uh, before the stewards before penalties are handed down. Uh, that didn't happen in this case, uh, which raised some raised some eyebrows. So it's like it's one of those things where I I think from Ferrari's perspective, the ruling was improperly rushed in begin with to to begin with, and so to have uh, you know. F1's response be, well, we can't, you know, there's no new evidence here. Why would we revisit it? That's got to be very frustrating because the entire point is you didn't give us a proper hearing the first time out. And I, they do have some grounds for complaint here, right? We we watched that video. Gasly was as at fault uh, for what happened in the final restart and all those cars going out. Uh, he's not at fault for taking out his teammate. That was, well... He's a little bit at fault for that, uh, but he he was he he was also like not driving up to standards, uh, you know, when when the incident occurred, and so you know to have the more lenient penalty applied to him, and you know because they sort of walked walked back from like giving him a race ban because of his uh, license point situation. 
That's right. Uh, yeah. It's it, it's got to be annoying for Ferrari to to get this response. Yeah, and they they did so they did submit um, more data, so like signs on board data, and I think maybe a state from statement from him. Uh, and they also tied they tried to establish a precedent with a, a previous event. Um, I think it was uh, Felipe Massa and uh, Sergio Perez coming together in Canada. Um, and, uh, that was kind of thrown out too, is like not relevant. Um, so they, they did their best. Ferrari says after the fact, quote, we are now looking forward to entering broader discussions with the FIA F1 and all the teams with the aim of further improving the policing of our sport in order to ensure the highest level of fairness and consistency that our sport deserves. Uh, so good luck with that Ferrari. Uh, well, from... A Ferrari-centric story to a Red Bull one, Rob. Uh, we have a grip of uh, stories here. How do you want to kind of summarize this attack? Yeah, honestly, uh, you know, so you opened with, uh, you, you mentioned just now that this sort of touches on Red Bull. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's no surprise right now. Like a, a major topic of discussion from the start of the season has been Red Bull dominance. Is Red Bull going to just straight up? run away with the championship this year? Are we going to see uh, race after race of Max, Max Verstappen, uh, you know, driving off into the sunset with like 20, 30 second leads, uh, unless some act of God happens and then Checo drives off into the sunset with massive leads? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, are we going to see a season like this? And, you know, one concern that you've heard about that is uh, – you know, there's all these new fans that F1 has who don't remember the good old days of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari making for several snooze fests of F1 championship duels uh, for for years there at the uh, you know at the turn of the millennium, uh, and they missed out on arguably the most dominant Mercedes years, right? Like that, you have a lot of fans getting really into F1. You know, maybe they watched uh, like the, you know, the 2020 like uh, truncated season where like, yeah, Mercedes kind of owned that thing from beginning to end. Uh, but it wasn't too long after that that you started to see their their dominance get get pretty thoroughly chipped away at. Uh, you know, you, you, you get you get some real pressure on on Mercedes. And so one argument has been that if Red Bull is inaugurating an era where they're just like running away with the sport. Is that going to turn people off of F1? Uh, F1 CEO Stefano uh, Domenicali has, you know, sort of poo-pooed that concern. Um, his, his argument is that, you know, these, these fans are like, these fans will stick around uh, and that F1 has in place rules that are going to mitigate uh, some of the competitive, disparities uh we see so you know i'm very confident with the budget cap this situation will evolve in the best way for a better competition uh and he, you know he he kind of argued that it's actually f1's hardcore fans that are probably more frustrated with the lack of uh cut and thrust at the, the head of the field he said it's more for the avid fans that if you see a car that is dominant that's creating a level of uh less interest for the new market uh the new fans that are coming into the business this is not really very important um 
I think especially because of the way that um, Drive to Survive has, you know, introduced those new fans in a lot of cases to the rest of the field. You know, it's not like you're coming into that old era and you're just, you know, the, the, the TV cameras are only following the car that's in first and that never changes, right? Like that is a tough sport to get into, right? And this sport was tough to get into, you know, even when, um, when we started this podcast, and that's the whole reason why it started is like, this is, there's a lot of onboarding here. Let's kind of learn about it together. Uh, and so I, I, I think I kind of agree with him. Um, in that I, or at least I can see why that might be the case because there are already, if you've come from drive to survive, there are already more things for you to look out for. It's, there's a tension around this. You hear, you hear the discussion in other sports as well. I follow this a lot with, um, this has come from around basketball that for years, the NBA has pursued this idea of parody across the league, which uh, it's kind of following in uh, American football's footsteps where the entire thing is designed that uh, to, you know, kind of even out results uh, between teams and not create, uh, you know, too many like perennial winners and losers. Now that can't save you from dysfunctional franchises as lots of people know, but in theory, at least there's nothing structural keeping teams from uh, getting good uh, after, after a run of bad luck. And the NBA has sort of, uh, like publicly striven for this goal and that hasn't been matched with greater interest, which has been sort of a concern for the league. Why, why is it people seem more invested? seemed more invested in the NBA when you had a couple super teams that were dominating things. And it was just kind of a question of like, which of them would come out the champion at the end. Why is it that when you have a much more dynamic and engaging field, you're not seeing fan interest engaged much. And part of the argument that, I, that I've heard advanced uh, is that, you know, it's easier to generate narratives when you have a clear front runner and then a clear underdog or two that's, that's, that's chasing them. If you get to a place of, you know, on any given Sunday or on any given race, uh, you know, it's, it's anyone's ball game. It does get a little bit harder to sort of hold in your hand. Like what is the state of play here? Which I think you could sort of see on our IndyCar primer, right? It's like, yeah, there are dry, there are teams we like there. There are drivers we we enjoy, but it's actually very hard to make any sort of definitive statements because the fortunes can swing so wildly. It's so rare you see uh, truly dominant runs like this. So I, I think Domenicali like might be onto something uh, when he says this. But having said that, I do think like as a, as the situation goes on long enough, I think it does become a concern, right? Like right now, yes, like a lot of fans who came to F one. Um, and we'll get to this next, like a lot of these folks came in through drive to survive. It's what we call the drive to survive effect. And that is a documentary series where, you know, it covers the grid, but let's be real, right? It's a series that's had two major protagonists, uh, Gunther Steiner and Christian Horner. Mm -hmm. Like that, those are the two perspectives that that show loves. And so, if Red Bull's doing well, that is kind of what some of these people who've been brought into the sport have, have signed up to see, right? Uh, you know, they, they want to see Gunther being a lovable weirdo, and they want to see Christian Horner being a, you know, cold, competent killer. And right now, the sport is delivering. Uh, now, whether those people would see, would watch four seasons of that, mm, I don't know. But uh, that kind of does bring us to 
well, what are we what are we talking about when we talk about the drive to survive effect? And you pulled some interesting stats here from uh, you know the, the athletic ran a story about this, trying to sort of pin down the the overall impact of drive to survive. And I was actually sort of struck by this. We can go through the numbers here in a second. I kind of thought the numbers would be bigger, mm-hmm. Drew. Like they're not bad. It's an, it's impressive growth, but at the same time, I'm sitting here and it was like also kind of a reality check, right? Where sometimes I feel like we talk about this drive to survive effect, like it is F1's the new national pastime, <laughs> yes. and like no, no. <laughs> yeah, one thing I, I I didn't get from this article was a, sort of a comparison to other sports here. Um, but there are some some really good stats. Um, apparently, there was a forty percent jump uh, for this season's debut of Drive to Survive uh, from the previous year, uh, which equates to uh, five hundred and seventy thousand viewers for its first week. Um, total season five debut week viewership, uh, which includes people catching up on all the prior seasons was up 35% uh, over the same period. Um, but I think what really the, the number that I was looking for and that they provide in this article is that uh, of the new fans, um, how many of them came into the sport from Drive to Survive? And this article, uh, they polled, uh, or it's a separate um, uh, entity polled uh, 1,900 uh, adults in the U.S. and showed that 53% credited Drive to Survive. Uh, as a reason that they became viewers of F1 races. I think that's a lot. That That is. That is a very effective... Uh, that's when you're talking about the number of people tool. that have onboarded yeah. to Formula One, right? Half of them did so because of Drive And the other half was because of our podcast. Exactly. Uh, so, yep. you know, pats on the back. 250,000 yeah. weekly viewers. Uh, yeah, I mean, did they get into anything, like... Who like do they get into like age demographics in this as well? Um, uh, no, no, because because um, this, this, this is the trend right across all of sports. Again, we alluded to this a bit in the IndyCar primer, but to make it sound like an IndyCar problem is not really accurate. All existing sports with like legacy audiences have struggled to really break through with younger audiences. This is just mm. across the board, and so I'm. I'm curious if the drive to survive effect has also been that you know they where a lot of other sports are fairly moribund in terms of drawing in younger audiences has f1 managed that uh on the backs of uh the show which would make these numbers more meaningful right uh you know because that's the that's the sort of the 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 seedlings of the next generation of F1 fans, but like it's, it's significant growth uh, compared to where it was, you know, you, you, you pulled the, uh, you know, us TV viewership when drive to survive began was a bit over a half a million uh, people tuning into each race. Right. Mm -hmm. And now like last year we were a little over a million people uh, tuning in each race or like 1.2 million. But that's still not a huge audience. Uh, you know, it's this is still it's a much bigger niche sport, and it's got to like wind wind behind it. But it's 
yeah, it, 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 this, this is not the next like NFL. Uh, and so like the, if, if this growth trajectory continues, that's, that's very exciting. My suspicion is, and you know, I saw some things where, um, this came up when, man, Domenico must have given a lot of interviews. Cause I felt like I saw like five or six stories that were centered on Domenico quotes about various things. He was talking <laughs> about the, the, uh, Brad Pitt F1 movie that Brad Pitt is making right now with Jerry Bruckheimer. And he was sort of making the argument that, you know, drive to survive isn't going to drive new audiences to F1 forever. Uh, and so we need to we need to find other vectors to reach people that Drive to Survive hasn't, uh, which which I think is probably correct. Like I I am curious how much more, uh, you know, juice is left to squeeze out of Drive to Survive. Certainly after five seasons or whatever, our interest has waned a little bit in what that series offers up uh, year on year. Doesn't seem like that has happened uh, with the audience that actually watches it uh, on Netflix, but you know, eventually these things do tend to plateau, uh, and we all know what happens when you hit a ratings plateau, as the movie uh, Network taught us. Yes, indeed. The Symbionese Liberation Army kills you on air. <laughs> that's that's what happens. Uh, <laughs> so, with this groundswell of, of F1 enthusiasm right now. We've covered before on the show that there's a lot of people, particularly uh, the Andretti Autosport, who want to start a new F1 team uh, and join the sport in time for sort of the new engine, the, the new regulations in 2026. Uh, and that bid is not like particularly, particularly the Andretti bid has not been enthusiastically received for a variety of reasons. But one of the other big things in play is that there has been a lot of denigration of the idea that F1 like should want or need uh, an 11th team. And that, if anything, F1 should charge a higher anti-dilution fee for new teams joining the sport. Now... This was coming from some of the team principles, uh, you know, as regards the anti-dilution fee, which for people who haven't heard about this before, some years back, F1 sort of set a rule that if someone were to come in and launch a new F1 entry, becoming an 11th team on the grid, they would have to pay $200 million to the grid, effectively. Uh, uh, like... $200 million spread across the existing teams to compensate for the diminishment of value uh, of their teams that the 11th team's entry would represent. At the time, it seemed like a backbreaking amount of money that it was going to keep a lot of otherwise, you know, potential inter interested uh, entrants uh, out of the sport because the... the Launch standing up an F1 program just to begin with is a wildly expensive and fraught endeavor to front load it with a $200 million uh, fee seemed like it would pretty much string razor wire around the F1 paddock uh, and, and keep anyone who wants to come in out. Well, now you see so much interest. It's clear that the $200 million fee is not discouraging anyone from trying to fight and claw their way into F1. And the response from the teams has been, well, maybe we should increase that fee. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, obviously, is 
you know, it's it is greedy, but it's also well 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 placed greed. Like the franchise is more valuable. Uh, the value of an F1 team is more valuable than it was uh, back then. And so to a degree, they want the price, uh, you know, to reflect that that increase in value. Uh, you know, to, but there's also a bit of protectionism here where the teams want to make sure that it always makes more sense for someone to pay an existing team an exorbitant buyout fee than to start their own team, right? They they want, like, as long as there's any team on the grid that's like, ah, maybe I could sell if given the right price. They want to make sure that right price is is offered. Mm-hmm. And a way you can do that is you just keep jacking up that anti-dilution fee <laughs> until, like, people are like, ah, you know, I'm just going to buy Sauber's an existing... Sauber's looking pretty good. Sauber's looking great. Uh Alvatore not interested in the sale. Put those rumors to bed. Don't put it out of your mind. <laughs> Alvatore does not want to sell. Um, don't know where these rumors are coming from, but uh, <laughs> you know. On the other hand, who needs two F one teams? Maybe someone. Is, I think all this stuff is in play. I wouldn't be surprised if Gene Haas, uh, even setting aside some of the potential legal dramas that may be about to un- unfold for him, I would not be surprised given the evident cheapness of his effort uh, over these past seasons of Drive to Survive, if, like, he wouldn't see selling that team for a large amount of money as a pretty good return on the investment. Uh, overall, these things are now legally forbidden from spending more than $130 million a year. Uh, so Domenicali finally came out and said, as the CEO of F1, Basically, that he's on board with this, and until with his vote sort of out there in the ether, it wasn't clear that you know it was just a few teams that were kind of advocating for the fee to go up and trying to like chase off the newcomers, or is F one going to kind of change the rules around this? And uh, Domenicali said, "I go back to one point: the so-called anti-dilution payment was done at two hundred million, two hundred million dollars just a couple of years ago." Because at that time, no one would have expected that the value of this business would rise up so much. Today, the situation is totally different, for sure. And it's our duty to make sure we protect the business the best way that we can, and we have a bigger picture. He was asked uh, you know, about Andretti Cadillac. He said, you know, today there's so many that would like to come. There are teams that are more vocal than others. Some of them are much more silent, but they're really expressing their interest. That is the one part of this that you often hear when they're sort of explaining why they don't. We just don't like this Andretti fella. We just, uh, we're not <laughs> sure about this bid. But, you know, we have all those other bids that you don't hear about that are very serious. We're very excited to work with these silent bidders. And that's probably true to an extent. But also there is a little bit of like. I'm logged in on my laptop to my eBay auction and I'm maybe placing some bids on it. There's just a, <laughs> whenever I hear that, I just get a little bit of a vibe of like, yeah, maybe, maybe they prefer business be, be done discreetly, uh, you know, in, in this way. But I, I do sometimes wonder if the interest is as, uh, you know, rabid as they make it out. Yeah. Uh, well, before we get to the last news segment, I did find some very rough um, numbers for what other American sports average per game. 
so we said F1 is at uh, 1.2 million per race. Uh, basketball, 1.5 million per game. Uh, and there are a lot more games. Yeah. Uh, hockey, 500,000. So F1's between... Also a ton of games. Also a ton of games. F1 more toward the basketball. Um, yeah. But again, 23, 22 rounds this season. Uh, all right. Final news story here, Rob. Mercedes. Rounding out the top three teams here. It just cracks me up that... Uh, so, the the Mercedes uh, garment rending tour continues. <laughs> uh, Toto Wolf gave an interview to Autosport where he explained that the... Interlagos win last year that the Mercedes sort of unexpectedly got. You know, we had that great sprint race. Uh, George Russell, you know, got it done in the sprint and then got it done in the race to sort of, uh, you know, not, notch a victory in that otherwise terrible W13 Mercedes. Wolf has, has said that entire victory was the perfect storm for Mercedes that would cause them to double down on the fatally flawed W13 concept for the 2023 season. Uh, you know, he, he said it got better and better. We were competitive in the American races. We won in Interlagos. We knew that Abu Dhabi, uh, you know, is a bit different. That was the perfect storm for us. It wasn't good for 2023. We thought we were on the right track and the concept works, but it didn't. Uh, last year was tough because we didn't understand it. it came as such a such a surprise uh, that we put the car in a zone where it wasn't generating any performance. In any case, not performance that we thought was important. And this year, the second year of the regulations, there's a lot of evidence about what went wrong. It's actually it's a decent interview. Like it's you know it's 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 worth reading. Uh, but at the same time, I just want to call out. We gotta stop calling things perfect storms when they're just like <laughs> routine fuck ups, like. <laughs> And I think I think maybe that's that might be my issue is that every time someone like accidentally ties their shoelaces together and face plants, like if they're a managerial type, they stand up, they dust themselves off, off, and they're like, "Let me tell you what that was the perfect storm of me humiliating myself." That was just the <laughs> who could have foreseen that? And frequently, it's like, "Well, these are really routine." Things that can and frequently do go wrong didn't require any real special circumstances at all. Like, for instance, Interlagos, was that a perfect storm? Well, there was a storm involved. There's a rainstorm uh, in Interlagos that kind of threw things into chaos a little bit during qualifying. But it's an unusual circuit. Uh, there's some unusual things about it just in terms of its profile, its, its altitude. Uh, like... I think when you call it like a perfect, it's a really exculpatory phrase because it kind of suggests that there are so many factors that nobody could have accounted for what the outcome of these decisions would be. And that so sounds kind of good until you come back to the fact that like they had a really bad car all last year. And then after beating their heads against the wall, they get one win out of it. And they make some gains across the year. They get one win. And they think, ah, they've, I, we've solved it. That high, they ride it through the offseason. And they're yeah. like, you know what? 
I don't think we made a bad car after all. We made, <laughs> we made a great car. We just, you know, it was just such a smart concept. It took us a whole year to figure out, like, how to make it work. Uh, but surely next year will be different. And so, like, I, I don't know. It's... Um, it, it's it's very funny to sort of to sort of see these excuses uh, offered up, like you know, these sorts of like the margins are so thin, small miscalculations can have massive impacts. Absolutely, but I'm just I'm I'm just cracking up at the way that like Mercedes processing setbacks is just one of the funniest damn things. We we it's have so the fascinating we have watch. the like six page letter to fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we we have. We have uh, at the end of last season Mercedes being like we are going to send a copy, a tiny copy of the W13 to every single person who's ever worked at Mercedes. They can contemplate what a garbage car it was and be motivated <laughs> to be better. And then they double down on it, and then they're like, and then they're like, damn, no way this could have happened without some crazy things <laughs> happening to derail our thought process. Man. Uh, all right. Well, those are the news stories. Uh, let's take it now to emails. So next week we're, we're going to have our pre Baku episode. Uh, Danny will be back, uh, joining us again. Uh, but until then, uh, we don't have a race, uh, upcoming to talk about. So, uh, we solicited some emails from you all out there in podcast land last episode. So we've compiled uh, a few of them here. Uh, Rob, why don't you kick things off? Oh, and by the way, if you'd like to send in emails, we also read them on, um, uh, pre-race shows, uh, shift F1 podcast at gmail.com or F1.cool slash emails. If you would like to send in your own email, but yes, Rob, let's kick this one off from Maria. All right. By the way, Drew, if there's an actual answer to this that, you know, uh, that I'm eager to hear it. Cause I actually don't know the answer to this, but I have theories. I have theories. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you for your podcast. As an F1 convert from Drive to Survive, you've helped me understand the nuances to the myriad race rules over the past few seasons. This is a small, silly question, but since we have a three-week gap, which will result in an email roundup episode, it feels like the time to ask. Why does Total Wolf sit indoors and not at an outdoor pit wall during races? Is it because he just gets to do whatever he wants, or is there more to the story? Thank you for your service, Maria. So... when I look at this, I have a couple. Like, I have a couple theories. I don't know what the definitive answer is. Uh, one, Total Wolf is a banker. Like, let's be real. This, this is a business. This is a businessman, right? Like, he loves loves the F one stuff, but I do think he is more of a creature of the C suite than <laughs> your typical F1 team principal. And mm. so to a degree, sitting back there in the garage, we're going to keep an eye on the whole operation. You know, garage, both sides of the garage, in eye line. He's got his little uh, squawk box. He's listening to all the team comms uh, that are happening between the departments. And he can get eyes on the pit wall, uh, you know, across the uh, across pit lane. And so to an extent, like, I think that kind of makes sense for a like, where does he see himself in this? He sees himself there. Not on the pit wall. Uh, that is that is execution-oriented. He sits here and just sort of watches it unfold and intervenes where necessary. Like, that is kind of my theory. He is strategic, not tactical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of chalk it up to a difference in management philosophy. Um, do, you, do you lead from the front? Uh, or do you empower your uh, subordinates to do their roles. Uh, I think Toto is very much the latter, 
Whereas someone like Christian Horner uh, is always up there on the pit stand. Um, how much their actual moment to moment roles differ uh, or, you know, how much does Christian Horner or Total Wolf weigh in during a race? I have no idea. Um, tough to know, you know, without being in on those, those ground loops. But, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I took from it. Yeah. I could also see it being like just a more comfortable place to do that job from, like, you know, it, more, more comfortable setup, uh, and maybe the things he wants to be able to see and touch would just like take up too much real estate on that pit wall. Like I could, I could see there being a practical element too, but yeah, it does seem like a philosophical, uh, positioning of, of the self here surprised he doesn't have more screens you should have like one ultra wide monitor and then one vertical ultra wide monitor well remember you know? both pit both walls of the pit uh, the garages are covered monitors mm. so now may, like i suppose if you're precious about viewing angles that's not optimal but he can kind of turn left or right and I think see a whole bunch of like race feeds. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would love to just like mess around with like what kind of, what kind of input switching do they have? What kind of like, how do you, can you turn up each individual audio track to hear? This you know, is like, when, when I saw this question, I was sort of wondering, is there somebody in Mercedes like it or comms or whatever department who like hates that he does this? That like they have to <laughs> wire up an entire like endpoint that can get across all comms. Uh, that's like in the middle of the garage, away from like the actual command center. Uh, I do kind of wonder if this this, this oddity uh, puts any weird pressure on signal flow and just like layout of the communications channels. But uh, yeah, yeah, I I. Uh... It has me thinking of, uh, you ever been to that website, Apollo in real time? No. It, they basically have taken <clears throat> like every audio recording from uh, each you know, station in Mission Control and the spacecraft from Apollo 11 and maybe 12 and 13, certainly 11 and 13, and kind of play them all in real time. Uh, and then they overlay like pictures from it, video from it. And uh, whenever it, whenever that piece of media shows up in real time, that's when they play it. Uh, I really want something like that for Formula One. I know no team would ever agree to that, but uh, it is amazing. I will, I will put that uh, in the show notes. Oh, this is sick as hell. Oh, it's really cool. Apollo 13 um, just happened uh, on uh, April 11th. Uh, and I watched the the liftoff uh, in real time. Uh, but you can, you know, you can, uh, see, you this can, you can start it whenever before. you want. Yeah. This is like, we got to get away from the, from the crap internet that everyone, like the e shitification internet that like <laughs> yes. everyone's building. And we need more weird projects like this. Yeah. Shout out to, uh, Bill Schmidt at digital Eclipse for passing that one along. Uh, all right. Next email. This one from dusty bacon. Hey shifters, I started watching F1 after Rob uh, after watching Rob play Motorsport Manager and then playing a truly absurd amount of Motorsport Manager myself. I started the 2022 season from the first race and worked my way forward until I eventually caught up to real time. 
In the Barcelona race, there were five to 10 laps where George Russell held back Max and Checo in an obviously worse car. This was the first time I thought to myself, wow, that driver is doing something special. Do you have a race or driver or moment that sticks out in your memory as the first time you went wow from when you were new to the sport? Thanks. Love the pod. Dusty Bacon. So I have a couple, uh, one specific and one more general. I remember early on um, when you when you don't know anybody and it's all just different color cars out there, you do kind of latch on to stuff and maybe maybe in the future, if you had seen that same move, you would have been like, whatever. But because you're new to it, it imparts so much more gravity on you. I think that's why I became a big Valtteri Botas fan because I was watching him in a Williams car and they weren't as bad as they were. Uh, this is 2014, I think. Uh, they weren't as bad as they are now then. But I remember like seeing him do some cool move uh, and go like that was that was cool. It's just what you're describing, Dusty's like. Okay, I I I know enough to know that what he just did was impressive, and now because I noticed that he has imprinted on me, and I am a Valtteri Bottas fan forever. Uh, a more specific memory is I think I talk about it a lot, but Max Verstappen's first uh, his drive in the rain at Interlagos. Uh, where he just ran circles around everybody. Um, that that became clear to me that like, oh, this this kid is for real uh, and is definitely going to be a championship contender one day. I think it was his first season in a Red Bull. How about you, Rob? Yeah, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think... I might be hazy on the details, but my I have a vivid memory of uh, there being a rainy race, I think at Monza, and Rubens Barrichello got in the lead, and I want to say maybe never got off slicks. Uh, but there, there was a, there was a race where like the, the, the conditions were real, were really spotty. Uh, like one of those things where it was like sunny day raining, uh, you know, off and on, uh, throughout a bunch of the race. And it was one of those races where like, it sort of seemed like Barrichello should not be able to do this, uh, on the tire strategy he was on. And yet he was doing, it was sort of running away with this, this race, uh, where there's kind of no margin for error. And it was so in defiance of expectations that I was I was kind of sitting there and uh, you know stunned that he that he pulled this off because it was just it was one of those things where you know you always needed rain tires uh, you know back then and he had he just kind of threw the you know standard tire strategy playbook out the window and you know showed no signs of slowing down. Uh, despite being on the suboptimal strategy. So now, it, you know, it's possible in retrospect in those kind of like damp conditions that it wasn't as impressive a feat as it appeared to be. But at the time, uh, it certainly seemed like he was, you know, pulling performance out of a car uh, that would have been really in, in really challenging conditions. Uh, so that was kind of one of those moments where I was like, this is a this is a special drive. Cool. Uh, you want to take this next one? Yeah. Uh, hey, guys. 
Given your experience in both gaming and racing, I'm curious to hear your opinions on the recent situation with IndyCar, iRacing, and motorsports games. Back in 2021, IndyCar and MSG, the company behind the much-reviled recent NASCAR games, announced they would be partnering to release a proper IndyCar game. Last month, iRacing announced that IndyCar would be pulling their license from the service to honor an exclusivity deal with MSG. Although iRacing users can still race the IR18, uh, iRacing is no longer allowed to use IndyCar branding or run races of the car at official IndyCar tracks, including the Indy 500. Players are also barred from uploading video or of streaming iRacing races using the uh, IR18. I didn't know that. That's crazy. That I had like I had wondered because I heard about like a bunch of this and I thought. I thought these would just there would be slight inconveniences associated with this. Like maybe no sort of like you couldn't run a virtual Grand Prix of Long Beach or something in iRacing. I had no idea it's you can't run an actual race with the Indy cars on an Indy car track. Uh, and your community can't create content uh, doing Indy car shit. Uh, it's wild. Anyway. All of this happened shortly before news broke that MSG has delayed the IndyCar game to 2024, as well as news that MSG's current financials are looking extremely dire. It feels like a slap in the face to me as an avid fan of IndyCar and iRacing. I can't say I appreciate Indy's choice to pull their license from the most respected sim racing service in favor of taking a check from a company on the edge of bankruptcy that is only known for poor quality games. Love the pod. Keep up the great work. Jake from Houston. Yeah, sounds bad, Jake. Sounds bad. Uh, <laughs> like I, I think the the thing that really surprises me here is it is just such a torching of good. Like, go back to twenty twenty yeah. when they couldn't run races, they went to iRacing and managed to put together decent broadcasts. They also turned to a celebration of like IndyCar past and present, right? Like having old guys show up to, you know, put their little sim rigs in their house and like take part in iRacing, getting guests like Landon Norris to come and drive with the F1 guys till uh, Simon Pagina decided to be a dick. And like, <laughs> it was, it was clearly a really successful and close relationship. And the drivers were authentically fans of these, this game. Like the the drivers use this as a resource, and the drivers use it as a community, as a way to sort of build community, and to yeah, to shred all of that because we need our F one series, like like F one has uh, via Codemasters, is and 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 you're not dealing with Codemasters, you're dealing with a company that's like, what's your track record? And it's not good. It yeah. like it, it's shocking that you would do sort of a shitty licensing deal that is very much of a piece with like something you expect from like the the late nineties, right? Where it's like, I don't know, uh, you know, you want to give us a few a few grand to to do a Xbox three sixty exclusive like <laughs> yeah. official game that like is going to be total crap. Sure, we'll let you do that. It's it, it floors me that IndyCar blew this relationship up. Yeah, it it does strike me as sort of that. Um, a complete lack of understanding of like video games and their communities. But I would kind of understand that from a company or a, you know, a body that hasn't been in it for a while. You know, it, clearly it was just, this was the lowest bidder 
right? And they were like, okay, sure, the kids love video games, right? Like it, it. That's how this strikes me. Um, and it's just, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's well, a shame. And they should then do a carve out. You know, I think that's their thing. Is then like, because the thing is, even if MSG were a reputable developer, and it just sounds like they are not in the, in the sim space, but even if they were. We talked about this before. iRacing is a different animal. It's a different, like, yeah. it's not compete. Like, iRacing is not in competition with, like, EA's F1 series uh, being right. made by, like, former Codemasters. Like, they're different experiences entirely. So I just, I also don't know why you would give the sort of broad exclusivity where you can't even use the car model and the appropriate tracks. Like, I, like, even if MSG was going to make a great IndyCar licensed game off of this, iRacing existing and doing IndyCar stuff wouldn't have been a threat to it. Yeah. Uh, all right, next one here from KDK. Hey, guys. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer currently serving in Albania, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. I love listening to your discussions and analysis of the race uh, races, and especially as F1 is not very popular here, and I have yet to befriend anyone who follows motorsport. It was surprising to me that F1 isn't more popular in this part of Europe, considering over 40% of the cars in Albania are Mercedes, and every day I see at least one person wearing a Ferrari-branded tracksuit. However, anytime motorsport or F1 happens to come up, people eagerly tell me, did you know they're building an F1 track in Albania? I didn't. <laughs> uh, it seems a few years ago, Albanian Prime Minister Edi Rama had a meeting with Jean Todd where they discussed improving the country's road safety rules. And afterward, Todd said in an interview, the FIA would theoretically support an initiative to build a motor park in the country. Uh, since then, Prime Minister Rama has promised his supporters that he will, quote, bring F1 to Albania. And there are plans to build a track in Elbasan. I try not to bring up all of the many reasons Formula One probably won't be coming to the third poorest country in Europe anytime soon and just lean into the excitement of maybe being able to attend some FIA event before the end of my service. If races didn't require a country to have unlimited time and money, what new places would you guys like to see F1 go? Marup Fashim from Albania, Katie. Uh, this is a great question. Um, I... <laughs> I really wanted to see that Vietnam circuit go off. It was so weird. Yeah. Uh, it was like a, it was, it was kind of like the Mercedes symbol. It was like a central point and then like three weird spokes out from it. Very bizarre. Uh, I would have loved to see that, but yeah. Um, what do you think, Rob? Let me tell you about a little nation called Malaysia. And, uh, and, and a circuit they have there. Now, uh, like truly, truly new places uh, for 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 them to go. I I don't know. Maybe it's like uh, I love when there's lots of like dramatic elevation changes, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like we've already seen how good Interlagos is. Uh, I think we just got to get one of these one of these things in like Colombia. Or something. Uh, yeah. Again, just like throw a track down. Uh, the Andes. Yeah, just like absolutely, <laughs> like maybe right on, right on the verge of feasible too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it'd be great. I'm trying to think of good like cruising USA or cruising world locations. Atlantis, I think, would be good. Uh, <laughs> maybe like the pyramids. You know, mm. that'd be a good backdrop. Uh, 
literally anything on the continent of Africa. <laughs> yeah, that would be uh, that would be cool. Um, yeah, I, I think there's like the the one thing is, of course, that I also spe- suspect that uh, F one showing up to a place is also a very good way to ruin said place. Like, mm-hmm. it, like as much as I'm like, man, wouldn't it be cool if they put a track somewhere, and then immediately you're like. Wouldn't it be cool if we just devastated the environment for like miles <laughs> around this like iconic location and to like jam an F one race in there and like we took a beautiful like uh, natural geological like st- like structure and we just like regraded that shit to make it uh, com- <laughs> compliant with like F one safety regulations. So you know, I think the the one thing I always bear in mind when it comes to F one is uh, like. It's so easy to do fantasy bookings for F1, and then the reality is so often complicated just because, like, running an F1 GP is such a like, involved process, and there's so many compromises baked in. Yeah. Uh, do you want to take this next one from Edward? Yeah. Uh, Edward writes, I shift F1 podcast team. I wanted to ask you guys a question about the governance of Formula One. As a fan of most North American sports, I'm used to the league being in charge of itself, typically through a commissioner or similar figure. However, in Formula One, we have the FIA, which seems to play a more prominent role in the sports governance. Could you guys break down the different responsibilities of the FIA in Formula One and how they work together or don't? I've also noticed some tensions between the two organizations recently, and I'm curious if it's possible for Formula One to leave the FIA altogether. Do you think this is a realistic possibility, and what would the ramifications be for the sport if it were to happen? Thanks for your time, and keep up the great work on the podcast, Best Edward. Okay, so, basically, FIA is a sporting regulations body, and it is a car industry standards body lobbying body it's like this is kind of the the weird part of it where like the theoretically it's a federation of like automotive clubs and 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 bodies that are sort of worldwide uh and so it has it has like road safety uh responsibilities it does things with like the actual like auto industry that touches on cars that like normies drive so that's another big part of the FIA's uh, brief is that the, the the FIA is concerned with like all things cars worldwide. Formula One is a business structure uh, built to run and administer Formula One racing, sell media rights against it, distribute prize money, uh, etc. And so the, the 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 two, it really has been sort of ne'er the twain shall meet situation. Because fundamentally, they are two organizations that are built to do different things. There is going to be tension between them. Uh, one is that, you know, the having a body of referees and officials that are outside the sport is always a a recipe for trouble. But as you allude to, like, could Formula One like break up with the FIA? They could, but actually I don't think they want to because I think, one, all these things that they have to hash out, all of that would suddenly become an internal pressure cooker inside Formula One. Right now, they can sort of come together as a group and, like, the teams can come together and discuss things and then they lobby the the FIA to change the way they do things. And, like, there's there's always a little bit of, like, 
it's someone else making the call ultimately. And so we do not have this, this notoriously fractious body does not have to come together and like reach consensus around a lot of uh, regulatory issues. The other thing like is that these are not teams that want to do regulatory stuff. Uh, you know, if you, if you say we're, we're breaking up with, with the FIA, okay, well, are you going to then take on responsibility for ministering all the open wheel feeder series that you're drawing talent from? Cause if you don't do that and you leave the FIA to sort of handle that stuff, but you'll, you know, you'll have the, the, the pro league refs, uh, that are, you know, that are managing things for you. If those things start diverting and you start developing like the college football, pro football, like split uh, for for your incoming drivers, that gets that gets really complicated. It gets really messy. Like just think about all the like all the things that F one as an organization would have to develop competency in to replace what the FIA is yeah. bringing to the table. Circuit safety, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So like, I, I think that's, that's the, that's the thing. So what do we mean? When we're saying like formula one, uh, someone's called FOM formula one management. So what are they all about? Well, why does it exist this way? Because you have to remember that like in the primordial ooze of F1, this was such a fly by night, like rich man's club. Like this was like horse racing, man. It was like, People showed up with their teams. Here's my racing team. Here's the car we built. And we're just going to go racing. Is this even... Not every race F1 raced at was an F1 race. There were sanctioned right. events and non-sanctioned events. Yeah. And to this day, everyone's like, I don't know. How do we regard these things? Uh, what, <laughs> how do we regard the results for these things? It was so loosey-goosey. And that created some real problems later as TV rights became a bigger and bigger deal because there became questions of like who was getting rich off this and then what is F1 like who who has the rights to sell TV rights for F1 is it you know the people putting on the like putting cars on the tracks like that was a, that was a pretty good argument for you know what the team should be enriched with all this revenue that was being brought in by by TV money uh, as the sport became like fully international and televised and so like sort of the foundation of modern F1 is like the really ugly, almost like sport destroying disputes over money uh, in this, in this era. This is how Bernie Ecclestone, who is increasingly a figure of the past, but like he is, a, he is sort of the, 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 the founder of modern F1. This is how he got control of it is that, you know, he sort of, I'm going to bastardize this history a fair bit. The it's, it's much more complicated and I never fully understand it uh, myself. But he sort of got everyone to bundle together, uh, like, all their rights, their negotiating power. It's kind of like a union of teams uh, in some ways to create Formula One management and create this body that would, like, sell the rights, divide the spoils, license the races, etc., it just so happened that it would all be done through Bernie Ecclestone for like 20 years. <laughs> uh, but the sport grew enormously. It all, it all worked out. And before that, you know, all these teams were just kind of showing up and doing racing and didn't really have any collective kind of like bargaining power or like media licensing power. And so like 
fundamentally, that's why that organization exists, is to create a product that they could sell against and monetize effectively. And it really had nothing to do with putting on the races because they were already the races were already being put on. So it wasn't a thing they had to add to their uh, to their list of responsibilities. All right, next one comes from Daniel, who says, Hey, gents, I know you speedy boys are busy, so I'll get to the point. My local racetrack, uh, at my local racetrack, the race director has radio access to all drivers in the track at all times. It's a quarter-mile track, so there are no spotters, except for the big races, so the race director is the only voice they hear. Does F1 have something like this, or should they? That way they can alert drivers to any marshals or safety team members on, clack, on track clearing debris, recovering cars, etc. Uh, of course, that means that officials in that section of the track would need uh, to report it, but it seems better than throwing red flags left and right. Love the show. Keep up the great work. So to my knowledge, the only person that can communicate with the driver is that driver's engineer. Um or at least that is, I don't know that that's mandated by the rules, but that's how it goes. Um, the race director can issue bulletins to the teams, but then it's the engineer's responsibility to relay that to the driver. Um, they do have uh, certain things that the race director can trigger. Like I think uh, something like a uh, a red flag or... A uh, virtual safety car um, will not only pop up on uh, the light panels around the track, but on the steering wheel as well. Um, but th I don't think that extends to uh, audio for the drivers. And I think they do this um, to bring it back to uh, the Apollo program. Um, they did it similarly, where everything went through the Capcom, the capsule communicator. And that was one guy who himself was an astronaut uh, who knew how to talk to the astronauts um, as the filter to make sure that, you know, nothing, uh, they wouldn't get overwhelmed with conflicting information. So everything would go through one person uh, so that they could simplify and, uh, and filter for the, uh, the driver in this case. What do you think, Rob? Sound right? It does, and I always, I, I never actually looked up what Capcom meant. I just heard them say it in like the movie Apollo thirteen and stuff. Uh -huh. Like, uh, what? Is, like, uh, we need Capcom to weigh in or stuff like that. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know, venerable fighting game company and and Japanese publisher Capcom. That is what, Capsule what they have Computers, there? I believe. Ah, that's yes. the origins of that. Okay. Uh -huh. uh, all right, Rob. This next one from Burton in Colorado. Hey, y'all, with the recent talks of ways to change the Formula One weekend, if you could institute one change without worry of logistics, what would you want to see tried? I have no idea if this would work, but I would love to see the starting grid for a race be determined by the reverse order of the previous race. So P20 becomes the number one spot on the grid, P19, number two, P18, number three, and so on. If you could try any idea, what would you want to see happen? I love reverse grid races. Mm -hmm. Love them to pieces. Uh, so I think... Someone needs to have the nerve in the racing world to just do this as a matter of course. Um, I think it's easier to it's an easier pill to swallow if you are running two races a weekend. I will I will say that. Yeah. Because um, then you can still reward teams for like, yep, you're you got good pull. You're you're the leading team. You get the race where you reap all the benefits of that. And then we have, you know, we do one fun one uh, <laughs> where we yeah. where we sort of mix things up. 
How about this? The cars keep the same grid spots, but the drivers are in reverse positions. So you get Max Verstappen in an Alphatari. You get Lewis Hamilton in Williams. So much they will never. They would never do it. They would never. <laughs> no, they would like not. talk about questions you don't want answered, right? <laughs> uh, like they my just, God, Nicholas Latifi. Is can you up. imagine a Nicholas Latifi just like got hold, uh, like like George Russell almost got hold of uh, like championship winning Mercedes, yeah, and like Nicholas Latifi just like like smokes everybody, and suddenly people <laughs> are looking at Hamilton's like six championships and like. <laughs> Oh shit! Are those real? And then you know maybe not. But then you have to ask answer, ask the next question: Are any of them real from the <laughs> from the meritocratic standpoint? Like, do we actually can we make any definitive definitive uh, statements? And we could if we adopted the car swap idea, which I adore. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think. Gosh, those are those are such strong ideas. Um. You could do reverse races, like like around the track in reverse, uh, the opposite way, or or put the cars in reverse and <laughs> race them that way. Uh, a demo derby, yeah, uh-huh. for sure. Um, There's gosh. Bernie's sprinkler idea. Bernie's sprinkler idea uh, has has a lot of merit. I I, I like that one. Uh, you know, I mean, they're trying the sprint races thing, and like if the theory, like he just doesn't generate reliably compelling race racing right like they, like there have been some weekends where we said i'm glad the sprint race happened it made it a more fun weekend and then there have been ones where i'm like i could have done without that and so yeah. i think that that's where it gets it's, it gets complicated i think for me i would love um give them worse tire compounds like <laughs> Maybe this is just the like me just being high on IndyCar right now. This whole C zero through C five system with different tire compounds, we sort of dial in based on circumstances. The hell with that. <laughs> they get two tires. You know what? Maybe only one compound, and they just use that at every circuit. And at some circuits. It'll be great. At some circuits, it'll be crap. <laughs> and you just have to, like, design around. You have to just, like, set up your car around that. And I think that would really draw fun things out of the sport. Because, like, if we're not going to race on as wide a variety of surfaces as, like, IndyCar does, the least we can do is, like, give them the same sort of, like, sometimes the tire just sucks. And there is no good tire uh, to be had. You just have to deal with that. I would enjoy that. Yeah. Or uh or dirt tracks. You know, like mm. NASCAR does. Yeah. Cover this whole circuit in dirt. Uh all right. This next one comes from Tim, who says, Hey folks, I've gotten a good understanding of most things F one during my roughly two years of watching and listening, but there's at least one thing that still confounds me on the regular. What's up with the commentator audio playing on top of an unrelated video feed during parts of the qualifying broadcast? This usually occurs during the short breaks between Q1, Q2, Q3 sessions. And I think we typically get to hear Sam Collins talking about something he's definitely seeing on a screen, say an overtake, but which doesn't match up with what we're seeing on the broadcast, which is usually some footage from the garages or something. 
why don't they just show the related video footage? Am I missing something obvious? I feel like I must be. Hope you shed some light on this terribly minor thing. Or at least let me know I'm not the only one who has noticed this. All the best from Sweden, Tim. Tim does point out that he is watching uh, the international feed using the F1 TV app on Apple TV. And therein lies the answer. So, Tim, what the international feed is, is actually the Sky TV audio. Crucially, the F1 TV app does not show you the Sky TV video. When you watch Sky TV on the Sky TV channel or on ESPN, which is a rebroadcast of the Sky TV's video feed, you're right. They do have a guy. It's not Sam Collins. He's part of the F1 TV team. Uh, it's usually Anthony Davidson um, or maybe Karun Chandok, who are both with the Sky team, uh, commentating and telestrating um, their own uh, TV screen. So... Uh, Sky cuts away from the uh, F1 official broadcast to their own camera and TV uh, while that is happening. So if you want things that are more synchronized to the F1 official broadcast, um, don't use the international feed in the audio. I think it's called F1 Live. I forget what it's actually called. I think it's what it actually defaults to in the yeah. F1 TV app. So that is... This drove me up a wall during yes. uh, spring. Don't explain testing. it. How would you know? Well, and also, like, I guess I understand why they can't, like, Sky TV has their own rights. It's kind of a weird thing. But I want to see Anthony Davidson standing in front of his big touchscreen and, like, do the spinny thing to play the frames uh -huh. and the spinny thing the other way to see the frames go the other way. Like, uh -huh. I want to see it all. And uh, that you don't get access to that, but you can still get the audio. And it's like, you know, cool editorial insert goes here uh, <laughs> is really frustrating. Yeah. Uh, Rob, you want to take this second to last one here from Brendan? Yeah. Hey, shifters, are we on a break until Azerbaijan, like the summer break, where teams are forbidden to work on the car? Or... Is the gap one where a bunch of changes could be worked on with drivers handcuffed to the simulator? Brendan. Uh, so this is not a uh, you-can't-touch-the-car uh, break. That is a – the summer break uh, has that rule sort of set in stone so that people actually get a vacation. Uh, that This is a – like, that's pretty ironclad because the minute you opened it to, well, you know – you don't have to take a vacation if you want to. If you're just so passionate about F1, you want to work through break, what do you know? Everyone's going to be working through break. So they take a full, you know, factories close. Nobody can touch the car, any of that. This is just, they're supposed to be racing. There's a con there's a race contracted for this gap. Uh, you know, as we alluded to, China, it hasn't happened, uh, you know, for, for a number of years now. And... Otherwise, they would be working, uh, and they would be they would be racing. So, this has become a pretty sizable development gap. But I don't think they've put in any sort of restriction on what you can do during this era, except for the fact that they do have like they ration your ability to do certain types of development work. Uh, so, you know, in addition to the cost cap, the teams have to observe they are limited in how much uh, time they get running aerodynamic simulations. Uh, you know running wind tunnels, etc. So even with a big gap like this, they still have to be very judicious about how much development work they put in. Well said. 
All right. And finally, this email that I'm going to call machine uh, computer numerical controller beef from Ben. Hey there. I've started listening to your show this season and you're by far my favorite F1 podcast. Thank you so much, Ben. Uh, Thank you for what you're doing. Um, I love it. I did have a gripe about the letter you read aloud about the accuracy of Haas CNC machines, and I wanted to set the record straight. I have been manufacturing with Haas equipment for over a decade now. I've done programming and machining of prototype and high production parts. I got my start in my college as a machinist for the Formula SAE team, and my first job out of school was developing and building out the manufacturing capabilities of a two-piece racing brake motor manufacturer in the Pacific Northwest, which makes iron replacements for anything with Brembo brake calipers on it. I now own a small machine shop with a Haas vertical mill and lathe. A standard, quote, off-the-shelf Haas mills resolution is one ten-thousandth of an inch, or .0025 millimeters. The quote you read said Haas machines can only hold uh, five thou, and that is just not true. Haas is not considered the most rigid in the industry for the best 24-7 production, but they are really, really good pieces of equipment for burgeoning manufacturers and big production facilities alike. They also have an amazing online repository of troubleshooting and repair guides for all of their machines, which benefits the small shops, where machines like DMG Mori or Mazak have absolutely nothing available, and you have to rely on the service in your area for any support. Haas gets talked about negatively often in the industry, but it's often by people who spent too much money for what they needed and have a superiority complex about it. Anyway, thanks again for your excellent show. Cheers, Ben. Well, Ben wants a piece of that that other emailer. Yeah. Uh, But the thing is, I will also say, I don't even know if we can fully trust Ben. Because we had many people write in with their various takes on the CNC, like, power rankings and like who's good at what uh somebody somebody was like no if you if you pause this one mercedes like video they shot in their factory there's a Haas machine in the background doing stuff Uh so clearly that's used for something probably like somebody wrote in that like it can sometimes come down to what materials you're working with uh that like some more sophisticated slash expensive uh materials you just don't want a Haas machine uh working on but it, it was I don't know if this is the biggest, the most controversial topic we've ever had outside of like a big racing controversy, but I think it has to be up there. Yeah, please write in with your hot CNC takes. Uh, those are the emails. Shift F1 podcast at gmail.com or F1.cool slash emails. You can also hit us up on uh, the socials with the links in the show notes. Uh, that's us around the various spots on the internet. Shall we take it around the world of racing, Rob? Let's I would love to. Did we actually do the, to, the, the list of the races thing? I didn't look anything up. Oh, I did. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's pretty easy. They're all added to a... By the way, if you too would like to race around the world yourself, uh, TooMuchRacing.com uh, has Google Calendar uh, and uh, iCal invites for nearly every racing series you can think of. And basically what I have done, this is some behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, is just added all of them to a Google Calendar. So, if you'd like to do that yourself, you can go to TooMuchRacing.com. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, but this weekend, we have the World Rally Championship in Zagreb 
for the Croatia Rally. We've also got the World Superbike Championship at uh, TT Circuit Austin in the Netherlands. Uh, Formula E is at the Tempelhof Airport for the Berlin E-Prix. The NASCAR Xfinity Series is at Dega, the Talladega Super Speedway for the Ag Pro 300. Uh, Super Formula is at Suzuka Circuit, which, by the way, is in the city of Suzuka in the Mie Prefecture. And we got NASCAR. They're also at those hallowed Talladega grounds. Racing at the Geico 500. You're, you're going to need some car insurance when you're rubbing and racing. At Talladega? The... The, the place where they shot Talladega Nights. The very same, Rob. Where, where, where Ricky Bobby shaked and baked. Uh-huh. Uh, we have, a, uh, we have a, a, a film review of Talladega Nights. If, if you'd like to subscribe to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash shift F1. Uh, it's great. <laughs> that movie, movie has some like. good sketches. It really does. Uh, final thoughts, Rob. Uh, at the end of our news slash email episode. It was fun. I enjoyed, yeah. you know, just shoot like shooting the shit, uh, going through these some great email questions, some great stuff to to work through. Uh, it was it, it was fun. I, I like this whole more relaxed F one season. It's kind of a glimpse of like what a more rational calendar might look like in terms of like the the, the pace and flow of the season. Uh, I, I enjoyed just from the standpoint of like doing the show. I enjoyed having like a little bit of a third type of show that we got a chance to do here. Well, if you would like to support the show and get access to all those bonus episodes we mentioned and the shift uh, the shift the official shift F1 Discord, you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week.